It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, September 25th, 2022. I'm Kevin Cork. Some call them the silent majority. Hidden voters, the kinds that won't answer polls but will show up to vote. You've seen this in the United States now in recent elections where there has been a, a suggestion that the uh, the Republican vote is understated because of the reluctance of Republican respondents or Republican-leaning respondents to speak to pollsters. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. With a little more than a month before Election Day, the polls show a tight landscape in many races as Republicans have their eye on some critical Senate seats currently held by Democrats. Their hopes of flipping the Senate require just one seat. Republicans do think that Nevada, the Senate race, is the best opportunity for them to win a Democratic seat. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. If there's one thing American voters learned from the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, it's that polls can be, well, tricky, unreliable even, and sometimes flat out wrong. Which is why co-director of the Fox News poll, Darren Shaw, says so many people are paying especially close attention to the polls as we approach the upcoming midterms. I think it goes, and it may go back further than this, that the obvious provenance is I'm from California. Um, i sort of remember this election, but Tom Bradley um, was running for governor against George Duke Majin. Bradley is an African-American mayor of Los Angeles. And the uh, the notion was that uh, there was a, a silent Duke Majin voter, uh, a voter who wasn't comfortable yet voting for an African-American candidate, but did not want to express that underlying kind of racial ambivalence, shall we say, to a pollster. And so there were People in advance of that election that thought Bradley's support in the polls was overstated, you know, compared to what existed in reality. Fast forward about 10 years, and in Britain, you had John Major, the leader of the Conservative Party, and people talked after his surprising victory in, uh, I believe it was 1991, uh, about the shy Tory voter that uh, there were British people who were conservative, but didn't feel comfortable expressing that conservatism to pollsters. And you've seen this in the United States now in recent elections, where there has been a, a suggestion that the uh, the Republican vote is understated because of the reluctance of Republican respondents or Republican-leaning respondents to speak to pollsters. You've seen it uh, internationally uh, in the Brexit vote, um, in some of the EU votes, where the conservative side, however defined, tends to be slightly underrepresented in the pre-election poll. So, so that, that's what we mean by this. There's a particular kind of twist with Donald Trump, and that is, is, is the kind of uh, blue-collar, white, lower socioeconomic status voter that we think is kind of a, a bedrock Trump supporter, not even necessarily a Republican, but a Trump supporter. Are we getting them in sufficient numbers in the polls? Are the response rates that have been declining across the board, are they particularly problematic for those sorts of voters? There's a lot of evidence uh, on that that we can get into, but that's kind of the general idea. Let me ask you about the dwindling response rates. What's behind that, do you think? Well, it used to be, uh, and these have been going down for years. When I started yeah. polling in the in the late '80s and early '90s, response rates were in the you know the middle teens, you know, 50 percent. What I mean by that, just to explain to your audience, is uh, you know we will identify randomly, um, let's say uh, five thousand voters, whether from a, a random digit dial or more recently from voter lists. 
right? So you've identified them randomly. And that's what makes sampling uh, statistics work is a random selection of respondents. However, if those people you selected randomly decline to participate and that decline is not randomly distributed. In other words, certain kinds of people are more likely to refuse than others. You can introduce bias into your sample, even though your selection process has been uh, you know, absolutely kosher and consistent with probability sampling techniques. The reason for that, we think, in the old days, it used to be answering machines. Uh, you know, People were screening their calls. Nowadays, uh, we think the the issue is a little more, you know, it's as the switch to cell phones has occurred, people are even more able to screen calls. In fact, of course, the, uh, you know, the financial burden is actually on the person answering as opposed to the person calling. These things reduce response rates, as well as just the blizzard of information and requests that we all get. People are much more reluctant to respond to somebody whom they don't know. And pollsters have tried all sorts of techniques to get around that. Professionally, just so your audience knows, though, is because I'm painting a picture that suggests, oh, my gosh, these uh, these are huge, huge issues. And they are. But there's been a lot of reassuring evidence um, in the last 10 years or so uh, by people who have done a, a variety of studies. Pew, for instance, has done this terrific study where um, they've invested heavily, incentivized people to respond. And what they've done is they compared their sort of average response rates in a poll to a poll in which they get 30 or 40% response rates. And they do that, as I said, by offering people incentives to participate, um, you know, financial incentives elsewhere, just to get the response rates up. And what we find is that the main bias um, when it comes to lower response rates is that we're just getting people who are way too interested, way too engaged, and way too knowledgeable politically. So the main bias in in sampling these days isn't a partisan bias. It's that we get way too many people who know about issues, who know candidates, who are willing to offer opinions. So what we do is we overstate kind of the general information levels of the public. But most of the time, it doesn't really have a partisan bent to it. But there are people, I think you would acknowledge, who feel as if, and I think this speaks to maybe those who are less likely to participate, they feel like the polls themselves are more heavily weighted for one particular ideology over the other, and therefore they're implicitly biased and not fair. Do you hear people say that? I think that's, uh, well, so for instance, let's take a hypothetical. If we were to uh, go out and say, hey, I am calling from Darren Shaw Research on behalf of MSNBC, would that affect the willingness of Republicans to participate? Almost certainly, right? If I said, I am Darren Shaw, for Darren Shaw Research calling on behalf of um, Breitbart News, uh, would that reduce the willingness of Democratic respondents to participate? Almost certainly. You can kind of see where I'm going here. The main thing we try to do is, for instance, I'll use the uh, the name of the, uh, the survey research organization I use, as opposed to saying, I'm with media entity X or media entity Y. Because, you know, if th- there is a bias against polling generally, but it's largely kind of aimed at the sponsors of the polls, the the media organizations that are presumed to have a particular bias. But, it, you know, your identification of the general issue, which is these declining response rates and how we deal with that um, and the reluctance of people to respond to an entity they think is hostile, it increases all the general problems we have about social desirability, we call it in the discipline, right? People are more likely to give socially desirable responses if they think those are going to be public. So we take pains to assert that, you know, the nonpartisan bent of the organization we're calling for, that their responses are completely anonymous. Um, We've even gone to mixed mode formats. That is to say, um, if they're not comfortable on the phone 
would they right. prefer a paper interview, right? Where they might be more willing to express their true opinions, right? All that sort of stuff has come into play and, you know, has prompted a lot of research. Very interesting. Let me ask you, um, before I ask you about the power rankings, and I want to get to that uh, as we sort of uh, unpack where we are uh, with respect to the House race for uh, dominance there, and obviously the Senate, which is significantly closer. Uh, I want to drill down for just a second on something you said earlier about maybe, for lack of a better description, hidden Trump voters, hidden conservative voters who are out there. Um, I've seen some pieces, as I'm sure you have, uh, in some of the major publications, sort of warning Democrats, if you will, as we approach the midterms, that don't think that the momentum we're building is real because we're still up against this hidden wave, this hidden tide of people who are simply not engaged publicly, but certainly might show up. Talk to me about that. Sure. Uh, so let's be real kind of precise about the specific nature of the potential issue we're talking about. National polls, despite all the kind of hue and cry, have been pretty good the last few cycles. You know, they had on average Hillary by about three points in, in 2016, which ended up being right. These are the national polls. Same with Biden, maybe maybe a point or two high. And the Biden number tended to be almost right on the money. It was the Trump number that was like a point lower. So the statewide polls have been more uneven. A ton of them were, were very accurate in both 2016 and especially 2020. But in a few states, most notably these upper Midwest states, so the Wisconsin's, the Pennsylvania's, the Ohio's, and the Michigan's, we weren't nearly as accurate. We, I'm speaking collectively, not our, our Fox polls are always impeccable. So let's get that straight. <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's, and the supposition then is that the kind of supporter that we really kind of think of as a Trump supporter, you know, less, less than a college education, white, blue collar, the ones who um, Trump's particular appeal, right, and his statement of the grievance really resonates with. We're really concerned that, okay, a lot of those voters are newly registered, like Trump and Brad Parscale and his entire operation got them on the rolls. And we're concerned about our ability to catch those people. How do we check that? Well, one thing we, we're really sensitive towards is, first of all, the, the distribution of not just people who say they um, are Republican or Democrat, but also people say how they voted in the 2020 vote. So if we ask a retrospective on the 2020 vote and we get a Biden plus 14 margin, then we've got an issue. And by the way, I think the vote is a better indicator here. Party identification, just again for the audience, that's an attitude that can fluctuate with how well things are going for one side or the other. It's not a fixed demographic. And people who think it is are way off. You know, in a in a year like 1984, the Republicans are gonna, you know, do really well on party ID. In a year like 1996 or 08, the Democrats are gonna do well, right? Democrats looked a lot better in 2018 on party ID than they do right now in 2022. So we're always paying attention to that, right? But we're all also concerned. What I take is a real issue for those of us who are conducting polls. Is it the case that the Republicans, for instance, right now what we're really concerned about are the Republicans we're getting in our sample. It's less, for me, the distribution, like are we getting enough Republicans or enough Democrats? The real question, Kevin, is are we getting the correct representation of the Republicans and Democrats are going to show up? So that's on both sides. So we're focusing, as you suggested, on are we getting, you know, is the Republican sample we're getting sufficiently Trumpy? for lack of a better word. Are we really getting those individuals? Because they have distinct policy preferences. But I would also say, look on the other side. I think where there's some issues right now, are we getting the correct Democrats? And what I mean by that is the Democrats who are responding to our sample, 
are very anti-Trump. They can't wait to talk to a pollster and tell us how much they hate Trump and how intense they are about voting in this election cycle, which means their defection rates, the percentage of them who say they're going to vote for a Republican candidate are really, really low. What What we found in 2016 or 2020 is that those numbers were slightly higher than we had estimated in some of our polls. So part of what I'm saying is is a little palliative, which is it's not, I think it's been a little overstated and misrepresented, but what I would also do on the other side is suggest it's a broader issue than people seem to think. It's not just, are we getting the right Republicans, but are we getting the right Democrats? Because you know the notion that only 2% of Democrats in 2022 are gonna defect to Republican Senate candidates, in this environment with inflation and the education and crime issues, mm-hmm. I'm dubious about that. So so keep your eye on that number as well. Very interesting. Uh, in the 30 plus seconds or so we have left, uh, handicap the power rankings. It looks like Democrats highly unlikely to win back the House. It looks like Republicans will rest that away. The Senate a little tighter. Tell me what you're finding. It's got to be difficult for your your audience right now because it seems like the Democrats have a little momentum nationally in the House side as, as Dobbs and, and Uvalde and these issues have broken a little more favorably for the Democrats. But on the Senate side, we're also seeing a rebound of Republicans who were underachieving earlier in the summer. So we're talking about Pennsylvania, talking about Georgia, Arizona, and the movement in Nevada in particular. That was seen as a, and it still is, a battleground for the Senate. But right now it's pretty i think there's a consensus that the republican is is kind of taking a little bit of control of that race so all those races everybody please keep your eyes on those are going to be critical races here's a little, little interesting tidbit too we're also on the decision team watching that alaska race because there's four candidates three republicans and one democrat ranked choice voting and a 50 percent threshold so on election night we're waiting until one in the morning at least. And then we got to go through this whole. So you guys might be sitting on this thing where it looks like the Republicans could take the Senate, but we're not able to call Alaska because the votes are still coming in via caribou or dogs, you know, dog sled or wherever. And then we got to go through this ranked choice voting process. So uh, it's it's tight and it's going to be a, a really interesting ride. Looking forward to taking it with you, Darren. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely, Kevin. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. While polling fluctuates and shows Democrats made some summertime gains with voters ahead of midterms, one thing hasn't changed too much. The Senate is still considered a toss-up, with just a little more than a month before November elections. And with an evenly split Senate, the stakes are incredibly high. Republicans need one seat to take the majority away from Democrats. And Fox's Mark Meredith notes the Fox News power rankings do give a slight edge to the GOP. But there are four races considered true toss-ups, which will determine who gets control. Our data shows those races are Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, essentially that those seats could go either way. One of the Senate seats Republicans are putting a lot of hope in is that one in Nevada, currently held by Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto, a Latina senator in a Latino-heavy state. Her opponent is former State Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who lost the governor's race four years ago. She's a rubber stamp for Joe Biden and a rubber stamp for the left. She has voted with the financial package of Joe Biden 100% of the time. 
We have inflation because of her vote. Cortez Masto has called out Laxalt for his past work on the 2020 election, his lobbying ties, but also highlighting her own stance on abortion, as Democrats and some independent voters have been motivated after Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court this summer. I stand with the vast majority of Nevadans who believe in a woman's right to choose. We are a pro-choice state, and I'll make sure we keep it that way. And while the issues between the two are focused on things like abortion and the economy, there's another debate over debates. Cortez Masto says she's accepted them. Laxalt's team says they have two, but with specific outlets only. So as of this past week, nothing had been set in stone. The latest polling shows a dead heat with a slight edge to Laxalt, though within the margin of error. And a newer poll from a more progressive leaning outlet says Laxalt is ahead with independence by 19 points. It's not just the data for progress poll. There's actually been quite a bit of polling in Nevada. And when you look at the totality of the results, Every poll pretty much shows Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democrat, either statistically tied or trailing a Republican Adam Laxalt. Josh Krausauer is a senior political correspondent with Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. When you're looking at those numbers with a month to go before the midterms, that, that's a big red flag. Uh, Republicans do think that Nevada the Senate race is the best opportunity for them to win a Democratic seat. They have a candidate in Laxalt who has experience in statewide office winning the attorney general's uh, race in 2014. And, you know, look, the, the, the state itself is, is tilting a little more in a Republican direction. It has a lot of working class voters that uh, work at the casinos, work uh, in middle class jobs across Las Vegas, and they are feeling the squeeze. Gas prices are very mm -hmm. high in Nevada. So that's helping Republicans. And then you also just have the Hispanic vote, which has normally been an overwhelmingly Democratic constituency, but it's moving a little bit uh, more in a Republican direction uh, lately, which makes a big difference. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. And also of note, you know, Cortez Masto, of course, is a Latina herself. So that, that factors, and I'm sure, in, in the Latina vote as well, to some extent. But Cortez Masto says Laxalt she said this recently, he cannot defend his record of working as an attorney and making a lot of money with a D.C. lobbying firm while he was out of politics, um, trying to overturn the 2020 election and attacking a woman's right to choose. That sounds like her sort of bullet point sum up of, you know, where she comes to, you know, biggest disagreement with Laxalt. But on that, uh, that abortion front, Laxalt has a new ad that says abortion laws haven't changed in Nevada. And I want your thoughts about is that sort of a good move to point that out. Like if the GOP isn't coalescing around a single message on abortion and it was left up to the states after Roe was overturned, is that the way for Republicans to take that issue off the table, especially if you're in a tight race, just say, well, it's a national issue, but look at our state. This is the emerging Republican playbook on abortion rights, especially in these swing states where the laws are not going to change, right? I mean, Nevada actually has uh, based on a 1990 referendum, a 24-week protection for abortion rights. So what Republicans are trying to say in Nevada, not just in the Senate race, also the governor's race, is that abortion rights are protected. This election is not about abortion because mm. those laws are, cannot easily be changed. And Laxalt desperately wants to talk about the economy, wants to talk about gas prices, wants to talk about crime. These are issues that favor Republicans. Abortion is a major motivating factor for Democrats. It's pulling a bunch of swing voters uh, their way as well. But the argument in some of these bluer states, you're seeing this in New Hampshire uh, as well, is that we already have 
pretty liberal abortion laws on the books that can't be changed. So you shouldn't be voting on abortion shouldn't really be a factor because it's just a non-issue in, in a state like Nevada. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's going to work. I mean, the, we do know, uh, Jess, that Lindsey Graham proposed a federal uh, abortion ban of 15 weeks uh, a week ago. So that the federal law, if that it's not going to pass, but if it did pass, it would supersede Nevada law. And, and, and look, the, the, the overall issue itself is, is motivating Democrats to show up at the polls. But what Laxalt is betting is that there's so many voters that are just so disenchanted with the state of the economy that ultimately abortion may be a factor, but it's not going to be a significant factor in how swing voters make up their minds on Election Day. Talk to me about the election integrity issue, because Cortez Masto points that out as well. And if, when we look west of the Rockies and we focus on a state other than Arizona in 2020, Nevada really was one of the, the major places where we saw discussion, fight, debate over the 2020 election. And Laxalt was Trump's point man. Um, and, and he was bringing lawsuits over the voting machines there. Uh, he was referencing that, you know, Nevada is a transient state, that, that several people had moved but had still voted. He has told The New York Times that of all the Trump endorsed candidates, he, he's one of them that would accept the results of this election in 2022. And I wonder, as we talk about some of these candidates that have won primaries, uh, the Republican candidates who've won primaries who who have said, you know, they either don't accept the 2020 election results or they might question the results moving forward. Laxalt's one of those who says that he will accept the results. Is that a way to appeal to independent voters too to say, I might still have questions about 2020, but in my own race moving forward, I think things will be kosher. Well, look, I, I, and I don't know if denying the results of the 2020 election is politically smart. And Laxalt has a record on that. Um, he was pushing for some of these audits uh, and, and, and question the results of Nevada and other states after the 2020 presidential election. The attacks haven't stuck as much as they have to other Republican candidates, largely because he has pivoted away from those issues as the general election has approached. Um, and, that, and that's kind of the smart, I mean, the challenge for some Republicans is that they've gotten so extreme in the primary to win this contested primary that they have a hard time pivoting back into the general election, even if they even if they take the more mainstream position, like in New Hampshire, Jess, the nominee Don Balduck had also advocated a lot of these election yeah. conspiracy yeah. theories, and then literally the day after winning the primary, he's like, "Oh yeah, I, I did my research. I don't I don't believe it anymore." That's not convincing. Laxalt has been a little more politically savvy about moving moving away from some of the stuff he said after the 2020 election. But look, the Democratic argument in a lot of campaigns is that the Republican Party has been captured by the ultra MAGA movement, uh, by the extreme Republicans. Um, so if there is a vulnerability, then he has a few vulnerabilities. And one of them is that he he has said things. He has done things that, that painted more to the, the MAGA side of the party, even as he's pivoted back to the middle after winning the nomination. Let's talk about the governor's race for a second. Um, governor Sisolak has been in office now four years. And the sheriff, the pretty famous sheriff, Joe Lombardo, who was in charge um, during the horrific mass shooting in in, uh, in Vegas. Uh, he's running for governor. Polls look very tight there, too. Um, Lombardo was on with Glenn Youngkin recently. You and I have talked before, I think you've talked about this with everybody before, about how much Youngkin's playbook might be used after his Virginia win last year. Um, and, and Lombardo, for his part, appears to be highlighting education uh, after Governor Sisolak was in charge during the COVID lockdowns. I imagine an education focus is a, sol- is a solid move. 
Yeah, for the governor's race, education, in, in any of these swing states, a lot of Republicans are, are taking the Yunkin playbook uh, and using it to their advantage, focusing on school closures, focusing on, on curricular issues. And there's a deeper issue in um, in Nevada, which is that so much of the state, especially in Las Vegas, is dependent on the casino industry uh, on the Strip. And Republicans have attacked Governor Sisolak for keeping the COVID closures in place for too long, keeping restrictions mm. at the casinos in place and causing economic hardship for a whole lot of those workers. Uh, and that that is a potent line of attack. Now, everything is back to normal now, but there is a lot of scar tissue because of COVID decisions made by governors. We saw in, in last year's elections, the governor's races, that's how Youngkin won in Virginia. That's how Republicans almost won in New Jersey uh, and it turned out to be a very close race against Phil Murphy. So there are races, and Nevada is one of the big ones, where Republicans have a strong nominee. Lombardo is a sheriff who was the more moderate candidate in that primary, and he has been focused on quality of life issues, the economy, crime, uh, and, and then those, those COVID issues, too, that, that came up so much in the last couple of years. Republicans believe that if you talk to the Republican officials involved in governor's races, that Nevada is their best pickup opportunity to flip a Democratic governorship. And let's, Josh, to your earlier point, let's let's talk about Latinos. They make up roughly a fifth of Nevada's electorate. We always pay attention to how Latinos vote in Nevada, maybe even more so than like, you know, Florida Cubans, um, because they give us more insight into different Latino demographics. And we do have some updated Latino voter data from Siena College poll showing most Latinos, 56% are still with Democrats, um, even as most say they're voting on economic issues. But I, I want your sense, because you look at a lot of polling data from a lot of other places. I know there's been some Marist uh, information highlighting those GOP inroads with Latinos. What's your sense about Nevada Latinos? So different polls will give you different different outcomes. That, that, that Times poll is actually really good because they did a big sample of an oversample of Hispanic voters. But even you know, I, I guess both parties can find some silver linings in the data. But the big picture guess is that even though Democrats have the lead with Hispanics, Republicans have maintained their inroads from the 2020 election, which allowed Republicans to overperform in a bunch of these Senate and House races in, in a way that many didn't expect a couple of years ago. So even in sort of a less favorable scenario for Republicans, where they maybe don't make more inroads from 2020, but keep the gains they already made, that still is, is rough news for Democrats in Nevada because uh, Republicans made clear inroads in Nevada in 2020. The, the state was much more competitive for Donald Trump than a whole lot of folks believed. And if you think that the, the worsening economy, the challenges uh, of gas prices, grocery prices are still a major issue, Republicans should, should have the wind at their back in that state. So th that is why you're hearing Republican bullishness about the state of Nevada overall. It, it is because of the working class voters taking the squeeze economically. And you know, even if you think Democrats have, have stopped the bleeding with Hispanic voters, the inroads that Republicans have already made make Nevada very, very winnable and very uh, prime opportunity in this winter election. And I think any potential 2024 candidates will pay close attention to Nevada Latino results because they go so early in their, in with their caucuses. Uh, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with Iowa um, and New Hampshire, but Nevada was one of those early states. I want to ask you about, uh, before we go, some of the congressional seats. Nevada only has four congressional districts, um, but Cook ranks three of those four as toss-ups. They're currently held by Democrats. 
Districts three and four, held by Susie Lee and Mark Horsford, respectively, were redrawn to be more favorable to Democrats. I think that's fair to say. But District one, held by Dina Titus, seems like it might be the toughest race for Democrats to hold on to. I want your your thoughts on that. How how's the the mood toward the Republican there, Mark Robertson, specifically in Vegas? Yeah, third third district, the the seat that Congresswoman Lee holds is the the most competitive of the three. Now, ah. Okay. Democrat Democrats uh, redrew the lines and they tried to protect Congresswoman Lee. By, but by doing so, they made Congresswoman Titus in the first district and Congressman Horsford a little more vulnerable. They brought, brought some more Republicans in their districts. So, you know, that the, the, the good, if Democrats do well in those House races, it'll be because of gerrymandering and redistricting. Uh, but but there's a risk that they drew the lines they diluted the Democratic vote a little too much. Uh, that all three of those Democrats could be vulnerable. Okay, and finally, Josh, public safety-related bills passed the the House Thursday. I know some of those so-called um, squad members didn't vote for it, uh, and these this package isn't expected to get to the president anytime soon. It's you know we have to have a whole Senate discussion about it as well. But the thought is right that this is supposed to help Democrats refute the soft on crime, defund police rhetoric. Does it? What, what's your sense? Uh, that, that is one of the most fruitful Republican strategies, by especially in races where Democrats have said things about, you know, wanting to defund the police or maybe not say defund the police, but calling for reduced police budgets, calling for decarceration policies. Wisconsin Senate race is a huge example of that. The Pennsylvania Senate race with John Fetterman, also a big example but there are a handful of races where you have Democratic progressive candidates who have said things on the record about policing and law and order that Republicans are just having having a field day with. Uh, and, and if you talk to Democratic strategists and you noted some of the, the, the strategies they're using to counter the, the wave of attacks, uh, they, they think that is their biggest vulnerability, crime, mm. law and order, and just the, the, the time in 2020 when there were a lot of like progressive leaders saying to fund the police, let's cut police budgets. That scar tissue is still there. Josh Grosshar, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jess. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we'll watch as Congress has to come up with a plan to fund the government by the end of the week. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has urged Republicans to vote against funding if border-related issues aren't addressed. From all of us here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.